America. We are endowed by our Creator with certain unalienable rights, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. At Grand Canyon University, we believe in equal opportunity, and the American dream starts with purpose. By honoring your career calling, you impact your family, your friends, and your community. The pursuit to serve others is yours. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Private. Christian. Affordable. Visit gcu.edu. Hello, everyone. Thanks for joining us today at 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries. Many of you are familiar with this year's very popular A&E History Channel series, American Ripper, an eight-episode television documentary co-hosted by Jeff Mudgett and Aberillas Fox, which covers the life of the notorious swindler, con man, and serial killer Herman Webster Mudgett, known to history as H.H. Holmes. H.H. Holmes is believed by some to have been the first serial killer in America and was potentially responsible for as many as 200 murders in the late 19th century, his most famous Murder Castle Hotel in Chicago providing the opportunity for an unknown number of those, his wives, children, relatives, employees, and accomplices adding to the list of victims. In this television series, Jeff Mudgett, Holmes's great-great-grandson, tries to prove a controversial theory that Holmes and Jack the Ripper were the same person. Mudgett has spent 20 years researching his ancestor, and he uses that information, combined with 21st century science and technology, to team with former CIA analyst Amaryllis Fox to launch an investigation that could solve one of history's biggest cold cases. Jeff Mudgett, the great-great-grandson of convicted killer Herman Mudgett, was launched into the spotlight when he took on the grisly challenge of researching and authoring a book titled Bloodstains, outlining both the murderous life of his now infamous relative and the difficulties he experienced in writing the story, during which time he was constantly hounded by inner and outer demons that nearly took his life. Jeff Mudgett resides in Las Vegas, Nevada, where, as the hugely successful first-time self-published author of Bloodstains, He's working on two new books, Letting Love Live, which delves into the question, Can Pure Evil Love? And a second book, Before the Eyes of Men, is a fictional account of Spanish gold off the California coast. Jeff, welcome to 1001 Heroes Podcast. It's great to have you with us today, and I know our fans are looking forward to hearing to what you have to say. I tell you, John, it's an honor being on your show today. I've heard a lot about your show and your presentation with very famous um, other authors. And I've looked forward to uh, sharing, you know, my last year's experiences in production over American Ripper and then maybe some new evidence that keeps being uncovered regarding the uh, connection between Holmes and Jack the Ripper. Fantastic. Uh, I hope you can tell us a little bit about yourself just to get us started, your background, and how and when you first became aware that you had one of the world's most notorious serial killers in your family tree. 
Yeah, it was a secret that came up when I was 40 years old, John. I was a practicing lawyer in California, um, some criminal, and uh, quite successful in the San Francisco Bay Area. I was at a dinner party with my grandfather and grandmother. My grandfather was a very quiet, stoic man the, the entire time I knew him. We had very little relationship, in fact, and that one night he revealed to the family this horrible secret that he'd kept you know, to himself, not even telling my grandmother, and at that point decided it was time for the rest of us to share his burden, and he let us know that our, you know, my great-great-grandfather, his grandfather, had been probably America's most evil criminal. How did your family take it at the time? I mean, how did you take it? You know, I, I tended to react the same way most people react, John, to a new theory about the identification of Jack the Ripper or some, you know, two, three hundred year old historical legend or lore. I, I blew it off. I, I didn't want to believe in it in the first place. And, but I went home that night knowing that, you know, my grandfather wasn't the type of man who would carry a hoax around his entire life. I mean, he was the senior plant manager at a, uh, one of the big electrical plants in California. He was a very responsible man. And I knew that there was something to this story that needed looking into. So I decided to set aside my career for a couple of years in order to determine what was true and what was false. And lo and behold, here I am still working on that investigation, that journey about this, this horrible man, this monster that lived within our midst and created the murder castle, a place just not supposed to be in America, in Chicago, during the World's Fair, where he took advantage of, you know, I think hundreds of innocent young women. What made you decide to jump in? Most people probably would have looked at that, and talked to their family and said, I'm just going to put this back in the closet. What made, what made you jump in? You know, John, I knew I was different. I had idiosyncrasies that I'd been concerned with my entire life. I, I had never contemplated murdering anyone or even hurting anyone. But I knew the thought patterns that I'd lived with my entire life made me somewhat unique. And all of a sudden, those differences had a name. And, you know, when, when you're faced with that at 40 years old and you you know, you've tried to sweep them under the carpet your entire life. It's not something you can just continue living around. Mm -hmm. And that's not, that's never been the way I ever was. So I decided just for my father's sake, for my sake, for my grandfather's sake, I wanted to find out if any of this was true. And if it was, try to use that knowledge to try to explain to the world that while we were descendant from this horrible monster that I had his genes, his chromosomes, his genetics, you know, that we hadn't made a choice, John, that it had been shoved upon us. Mm -hmm. And instead of being embarrassed and humiliated, I wanted to tell the world, wait a minute, I'm quite proud of the fact that none in my family, after having this knowledge and having his as our origins, committed a crime, even, even, even was guilty of jaywalking their entire lives, too, were war heroes. And that has mm -hmm. something to do with the choices we make as human beings. I think it has something to do 
with criminology and psychology studying whether this stuff is passed on or not. You're clearing the family name. That uh, it is a master stroke in itself and a good thing. I, I hope at this point in your journey that you feel like you've done that. I, you know, I, I have quite, uh, quite emphatically I do, and my family is backing me on my journey now, where at first they were, they were actually quite angry with my decision. Um, they were quite upset when I agreed to do the series with uh, History Channel about the American Ripper. Um, they know that there's movies being made now, huge Hollywood movies about Holmes, that that name, Holmes and Mudgett, will be known around the world here in the next two, three years. And, you know, they accepted my promise that if they let me get out in front, I'd portray the family as something we could be proud of instead of, you know, humiliated from. Where did your research first take you when you decided you were going to do this and you were going to write a book? Where did it take you and what were some of the surprises that you came across? John, you know, having gone to law school and practiced law, I was trained in, in estimating evidence and its value in a courtroom setting. And my first realization, John, was that everything that had ever been accepted, quote unquote, accepted about Holmes had been derived from newspaper accounts of his trial, of his so-called execution, of the burial, of the murder castle and the legends in Chicago. And lo and behold, John, and I'm sure in your business, you realize this happening over and over again. The more of those newspaper accounts we, you know, scrutinize with a magnifying glass, with a fine tooth comb, the, f- the fewer and fewer of them we found to be true. Mm-hmm. Yep. And, and, I, and I realized we had to go back to the actual accounts, to the eyewitness accounts of those experiences to determine what about the home story we could put out to the world, you know, with history. I mean, history has a reputation to uphold. They deliver historical facts to a worldwide audience. They, they can't have me delivering a hoax to the world. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they, they scrutinized my work for months before they agreed to do the show. And then for the last year, we've had literally hundreds of, of production engineers making sure everything that was presented was scrutinized and verified. And, and of that, I'm quite proud of. And, and I hope the world looks at it with the open eye that anything involving Jack the Ripper requires. Did any of your great-great-grandfather's diaries make it to your hands? Did they come down through the family? No. Okay. No. No, and, that, and, I, and I let all my uh, readers and your listeners know, Bloodstains is fiction based on a true story. And it has to do with my, oh, my journey, my account of how my grandfather's secret changed my life. And there's many gaps in the story, John, which are not historical, which are not factual. They are my feelings regarding this horrible man who's in my background. And that's why the, the American Ripper series is not based on bloodstains. It's based on my journey to discover the truth. Well, that was the interesting part of the book, was seeing the challenges that, that you faced, uh, the, the psychological challenges, and the feeling that there was an, an evil presence there with you, which is, which is frightening you know, in itself. Not, I'm glad you picked that up because, you know, there's literally hundreds of books about Holmes written by historians and how many murders he committed, how many windows there were at the murder castle. I didn't want to get into those 
that back and forth debate, John. I wanted my book to be about what happens when all of a sudden you realize, you know, you're related to this monster. It was, it's almost like if someone had woken up one day, John, and, and been told by their grandfather that they were related to Adolf Hitler. It, it is a feeling that just is a tidal wave emotionally, which is difficult to describe. And that's what I tried. Well, I wrote my book for two years and I tried day after day to try to put my readers into those shoes I had to wear and try to see where their life would have come had they had to experience my same, my same turmoil. What was the Holmes curse? I know you've mentioned that before. How did, the, did you feel you were being affected by that? Do you still believe that's a real deal? Oh, God, yes. And that, that was, the Holmes curse is probably one of the most fascinating aspects of the story. And it was, it was that term was phrased by the New York Times at the turn of the century. When Holmes was allegedly executed and buried, suddenly anyone who had been involved in his trial, in his uh, incarceration, in the execution or the burial who had irritated or upset the man was ending up dead or suffering terrible misfortune. And we're talking about the judge, the prosecutor, the jury foreman, people that testified against him. And I'm not one, John, that believes in the supernatural, all right? Um, you know, I believe in energies after, after death, but that that supernatural thing where he would go visit the judge just didn't, didn't fit my bailiwick. And I tended to believe that someone had visited these people who Holmes was angry with. And in my opinion, the best solution for that mystery was that Holmes had done it himself. So I started looking at the execution. I started looking at the burial and we determined that those strange events weren't making sense. And each one of them was entirely fishy regarding some should have happened under the supervision of the state and federal governments. Mm-hmm. And uh, we, I came to the conclusion, I write about it in my book, as you know, that Holmes escaped his execution, another man was buried in his place, and Holmes went and visited those men to express his displeasure with how they treated him. Maybe he got to him in the afterlife. You know, that's, uh, I don't go for the afterlife stuff, but I, I know there are people that take that angle I still think, you know, with uh, when you watch American Ripper and you watch that final episode where we discuss the evidence of the cadaver after the exhumation, mm-hmm. I think you'll probably you'll probably agree to me. There's something there that hasn't been determined yet. Hmm. Let's start with uh, Herman Webster Mudgett uh, growing up. Was there anything unusual about his youth, and and when did he start to take on some strange tendencies? You know, he was an incredibly intelligent young man. He absolutely the quintessential evil genius. And he did well in school. He, he had strange friends. You know, the research we did with history, we went, we went back to Gilmington, New Hampshire and, and checked out as much of his boyhood as we could. Mm-hmm. We even determined that, and this will, this will shake your, your listeners to their bones. He even taught elementary school before heading off to college. Mm. So this evil man was in with the kids, and uh, we were we we tried to to establish his first murder, John. But quite frankly, I don't think we were able to come up with any direct evidence which would state that emphatically. And I tend to I, I try to stay away from that as much as I can. I know that um, 
you have said a number of times that he was a consummate liar. But if there was any truth to what he said, he did claim that during college he had he had killed his med school classmate Robert Leacock uh, for insurance money. And by then he'd already been doing apparently insurance scams uh, when he was at med school using cadavers and disfiguring them and, and, of course, buying the insurance on them falsely. Oh, he was, uh, John, he was the master at switching cadavers and substituting spits and when he was in medical school, you're right, that's how he paid his tuition, by robbing graves, cleaning the flesh off the, the newly buried bones, articulating and cleaning the skeleton and selling them to medical schools around the country, which was a very profitable business at the time. He also mastered the art of life insurance fraud, mm-hmm. and he found that the easiest way to do that was in seducing women or using friends, like you mentioned, his medical student uh, classmate, um, having them name him as a beneficiary, and then suddenly them either dying or disappearing mysteriously, and Holmes ending up with the ten to twenty thousand dollars in cash. And, and a lot of people in his company seemed to drop over a period of years. There just disappear from from the earth. Well, and that's why Johnny had to use so many different aliases. Obviously, if he'd been collecting life insurance money from the three or four companies providing it at the time, they would have they would have figured out the game eventually. Mm-hmm. But with the 31 different names that he used, he was able to go for years before they uh, they started scratching their head and figuring out, wait a minute, wait a minute, this may be the greatest fraud in American history. So in med school, he learned anatomy fairly well. And oh, yeah. Then- what path did he take when he got out of med school? What happened then? It's funny you ask that because he never, I don't know if we ever established that he ever practiced medicine, all right? Okay. He was a, a, a pharmacist, a chemist. He, he liked to do the, uh, the fraud and the con. But as far as taking patients into an office, I think Holmes was quite bored with that uh, aspect of his life and, you know, decided at that point that, he was going to set up a factory of death where he could use the, the knowledge he had and his ability to seduce young women to create, you know, a cash bonanza. And when you think about what the money was worth then and in today's times, he was making two, $300,000 a year. Mm. And that was quite a bit of money. I mean, the New York Times describes him at trial as this elegant, debonair, well-dressed gentleman, you know, who fired his lawyers and conducted his own trial. And I think that very accurately sums him up. Now, he, he married, uh, his first wife was Clara, is that right? And he married her while he was still in med school, and then he abandoned her and a son? Is that is that the right time frame? Well, Clara was my great-great-grandmother. She was my, actually my bloodline. And he married her before he went off to medical school. He, okay. he basically right. abandoned he basically abandoned them in New Hampshire and went off to medical school. Got it. The funny thing the funny thing about that is though that while you know, in production for the American Ripper, the the geniuses at History Channel we figured out with their hard work that Holmes actually went back when he was on the run. And Clara allowed him to come back into the house with her to hide from law enforcement. Hmm. And that's always, that's always been quite mysterious for me, why she would have done that, having been abandoned by this horrible man. And then her knowing, every newspaper in the country was writing about him, and then knowing what he really was. He seemed to have a hypnotic effect on, on women as you, as you start looking at his, his con story here. It's just amazing. 
There's no doubt about it. He could seduce any woman he had his eye on. At what point did he go to Chicago? Well, um, Chicago at that time was this just exploding metropolis of enterprise. It was where anyone in America that wanted to make a new career in a business or a corporation was going. And Holmes knew that. He knew that the World's Fair was going to be there, where literally millions of people from around the world, all famous like you know Einstein and, and uh, Tesla and the Wright brothers, everybody that was anybody was going to be there. And, and he planned out the exact location for his murder castle in proximity to where the World's Fair was going to be and where the junction between the rail lines of downtown Chicago and the line out to the lake to see the fair where people would have to come transfer over. They'd probably be tired from traveling all day and they'd need a little bed and breakfast to spend the night. And that's where the young ladies stayed before their next day where they were excited to see this thing that they'd spent all their money and come from all over the country to visit the world's fair in Chicago. What, what uh, modifications did he put into that hotel? He built it himself, right? Yeah, straight from the ground up. And he put in, a, was the second, the first floor was a commercial, and then the, the second floor and the third floor were, were rooms, is that correct? Yeah, and that's still the subject of debate. I've never seen an accurate layout of the building precisely, but I think you hit it. The first floor was a, a pharmacy. It was the lobby of the hotel, those sorts of things. The second floor were hotel rooms. And the third floor was his personal living quarters. And then the basement, of course, down below. And could you describe the modifications he made on the second floor? Oh, yeah. When, when someone, someone who caught his eye, he would instruct his staff to have them put into the special room where he could watch them with a secret eyepiece. He could introduce chloroform gas into the room to either asphyxiate or render the victim unconscious. He and his men would enter the room, send them the body down a chute to where it would be strapped to a gurney in the basement, and Holmes would then later come down to conduct his experiments in torture and whatever evil plans he had for the body, including the commercial ones. And it was quite, you know, the, the way that Harper's Magazine and the Chicago Tribune described the building as a factory of death, I think, was exactly right on the money, and that was... You know, I don't know if I've ever heard anything else like it except in a Mary Shelley novel. <laughs> and we just covered Frankenstein, and, and it wasn't as bad as, as what Holmes has done here. You also discovered, was that recently, that he owned a glass factory on the river there in Chicago or on the lake, one of the two? Yeah, that was, that was there's a historian, in, a young historian in Chicago that works hard on Holmes, and periodically he comes up with something of value, and he decided that he had proven that Holmes had owned a glass factory, which while in operation and running at tremendous temperatures in order to make the glass had never actually sold any glass material. And two, that Holmes had had a concrete factory along the river, which once again, while bringing in the materials, the cement materials necessary to you know, mix for concrete, he'd never actually sold any concrete despite the building being in operation. And that's when, when your listeners watch the, uh, I think the fifth episode of American Ripper, we actually investigate the Chicago River, downtown Chicago, 
to determine if that concrete had been used to make blocks mm-hmm. which would hide a human body and then be dumped into the river to sink down into the silt over the years. When he, when he first arrived in Chicago, uh, he worked for a couple named the Holtons. And when I was starting research on this, apparently some people were saying that he ended up murdering them both. But further research looks like they both uh, survived him. He had bought their drugstore with all the insurance money he was getting from all the mistresses he was killing uh, for their insurance. And then he started to build the murder castle across the street from that drugstore and that the Holtons both survived. Which is the true story on that? Did he, did he murder them or did they survive? You know, that once again, once again, John, there's a part of the Holmes legend which is derived from newspaper accounts, mm-hmm. which were derived from statements Holmes made, who is, as you described, perhaps the most pathological liar that ever lived in the world. I mean, I think Holmes lied to himself when he was sitting at home having a drink. And when, you know, they talk about that couple and the fact that Holmes went to work for them, he ended up with the property underneath them. He ended up with the property across the street from them. And for someone to argue that as sinister a criminal mind as Holmes was to have not concocted, you know, an outcome for them, which suited his purpose. I think is fairly ridiculous, and so I don't know. I don't know what really happened to them, and uh, but I wouldn't be surprised if one day direct evidence is derived showing that they were murdered. Mm-hmm. That hotel was at sixty third and Wallace Streets, and you went there, did you not? Did you go there with the the, the History Channel, correct? And went down in that basement. No. It's post office now. Yeah, it's right, sixty uh, third and Wallace. It um, it sits on the property that was just by the federal government to make the post office. It's the post office sits over the basement of the murder castle a little bit, but you, it mostly it's a it's a grassy area to the uh, to the north of the post office. And I was just there the other day, as a matter of fact. We did a we did a bus tour and uh, did some uh, interesting discussions regarding the murder castle there. We were there about 11 o'clock at night, and as always, I've been there four times, twice down in the basement itself of the post office. It's quite eerie, it's quite emotional for me, and it has ties to my ancestor, which are hard to deny that, you know, wow, this is not some, this is not some Hollywood story. This is what really happened here, and we're standing on the ground where so many innocents lost their lives. Mm. The first detectives that went in there did find a large pile of human bones. Is that correct? Yeah, and there's disputes about that as well, um, John, too. The, there were some human bones. There were some animal bones, I think. There were some cooking bones they found. Um, largely, what you, if you read the police reports, what you come away with, John, is that Holmes hadn't been there in quite a while. It hadn't been in operation in the basement. It had it had developed a horrible smell and environment, which was hard for humans to uh, sustain. And the police went down into the basement. They did as quick an investigation as they possibly could and left it. Hmm. And it, it was never even used in his murder trial, any of the evidence derived from the castle. And I think what law enforcement had decided to do at that point was, you know, let's put him on trial for the arrest of his, his assistant, Peitzel. Mm-hmm. Um, if, if for some hoax, if for some, uh, you know, mistake in justice, he's found innocent of that, then we'll bring him back to Chicago to have him stand trial for these murders in the, at the castle. 
but and you know as, as it turned out they didn't they didn't have to do that so as far as them investigating scientifically using forensic techniques of the time the murder castle it wasn't done can you describe what he and his associate benjamin peitzel were up to what their con was and what eventually happened as a result of that you know and that's that's another one of the Holmes mysteries he he writes about you know peitzel and and then the, the newspapers uh, tend to believe that this was a con between Holmes and Peitzel, and they were attempting to fake a uh, life insurance death so that they could collect the money, where somewhere along the line, Holmes either decided or made a mistake about Peitzel, and Peitzel actually ended up dead. Mm-hmm. And the historians argue back and forth now. If you go, if you go to an event or a conference, you'll have three or four guys up on stage <laughs> arguing whether Holmes intended to murder Peitzel or not. And you know what, John? I think you're probably in the boat with me. When you realize this man, when you realize the evil that was, when you realize his entire life and how he made his living, there's very little doubt in my mind that Ben Peitzel uh, made a mistake trusting this man too far. Absolutely. Yep. And who was Marion Hedgepeth? How did that play into that? Did what wasn't uh, wasn't Holmes sent to prison for some time, and that's where he met Hedgepeth? Yeah, he was in jail uh, in I think Missouri or Arkansas, one of the two. I get them mixed up often. But he met Hedgepeth in jail, and and Hedgepeth was a uh, uh, snitch that the law hmm. enforcement officials used quite often, to tell you the truth. Hmm. And he either coaxed Holmes into talking too much, which I've always found hard to believe. That wasn't Holmes' style. He'd never actually done it before or after. And for him all of a sudden to meet a man in jail and tell him enough material for him to stand trial for murder, I found, oh, historically ridiculous. But that's the story that's on, you know, that's in the novels and books now. That did put the police on Peitzel's trail, though, didn't it? Wasn't it Hedgepeth's? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. There, there, was, there was something to it. But as far as Holmes admitting a murder, I've never believed. Mm-hmm. How did they finally get him? How did they finally nail him for the murder of, I think it was for the murder of Peitzel. He, had, he admitted to many murders, and he probably did ten times as many as he admitted to. But it was Peitzel's murder that, that sent him to the gallows, was it not? How did yeah. they get him on that? He was, not, he was found guilty for the murder of uh, you know, Ben Peitzel now. Having practiced law and, you know, engaged in trials, I studied the trial transcripts of the Holmes murder case extensively. And I was quite amazed to see that he was found guilty of murder wholly on the basis of circumstantial evidence. There was no direct evidence. As a matter of fact, Holmes appealed the judgment to a uh, three-judge panel after who basically admitted <laughs> that they agreed with Holmes. There wasn't enough evidence here to put a man to death, but you know, here was a monster that they thought pretty much deserved it anyway, which, you know, they wouldn't, they wouldn't write that out these days as they had back then. But it was, it was interesting to read if you ever get a chance to see that appeal. Well, they also, they so, found, they found the bodies of Peitzel's children and, and Holmes had asked Peitzel's wife if he could watch the children. Is that right? Yeah, but none of the, that was brought up as evidence in the trial. Oh, okay. Yeah, hmm. uh, we actually in the Mer- American Ripper, we actually went to the site where he murdered uh, the eight-year-old Howard Peitzel, the little boy, hmm. 
and uh, we uh, hired an amazing forensic scientist who had a who had a uh, forensic dog who was trained to find ancient uh, artifacts, human artifacts, not current ones. And we went through the whole site. And I think if your listeners get a chance to watch that episode, it's an amazing um, expression of, of the way law enforcement conducts experiments and investigations of that type. Mm-hmm. And just, just watching how it was done is well worth that episode itself. What books do you recommend, besides starting with your book, Bloodstains, who did the most accurate uh, history on Holmes? Uh, there's two authors that I would recommend. Harold Schechter, who wrote Depraved. Mm-hmm. He's, his, book is, his book is awesome about Holmes. There's another author named John Borowski, who lives in Chicago, who's, who's a renowned Holmes historian. And then if you just like to write a piece about, read a piece about Holmes, there's, if you Google up H.H. H. Holmes and, and um, Harper's Magazine, mm-hmm. they wrote a six, they wrote a six page piece in 1941, John, that's the best piece of literature ever written about a killer. Wow. That was Harper's. And that's, okay. that's, yeah. Harper's Magazine, 1941, H.H. H. Holmes. I'd, I'd recommend you and your listeners to read that piece you'll come away shaking your head going, wow, now I understand H.H. H. Holmes. Okay. Is there, anything, is there anything we missed on Chicago and Holmes before I transition to Ripper? Go past the, you know, the arguments about whether he killed 27 or 49 or mm-hmm. 63 or 200. Okay. But understand that this man, he, he was unique in his ability to... Well, let me, let me just make a statement. He, you know, anybody that studied him knows his life was a series of complex lies. He, he was the master of false identity. And he was a magnificent swindler, John, who pyramided fraud upon fraud. And he was the most skilled of manipulators at the most amazingly complex of enterprises. And, and I often tell people when I give talks, it's a shame that he had to be involved in the serial killing aspect because it would have been it would have been more amazing to study how this man manipulated law enforcement, the media, corporations around him, his banks, his lawyers, anyone involved with him fell victim to his frauds. And he was remarkable for his boldness and impudence. And, and, you know, um, the most amazing part, I think you and I hit on it already was his ability to talk others into assisting him in these hideous schemes. You know, the, the Chicago Journal once described his crimes as deliberate, planned, and concluded with consummate skill. And I think that hits it on the head. Then the Chicago Tribune called him the smoothest and best all-around swindler that ever struck this town. Mm-hmm. So we're dealing with a criminal par excellence, which we get lost in the serial killer aspect and the murder castle part of it. But I, I want to put a little more time into the frauds he committed on the banking world, on law enforcement, and on the media. Good point. The, another point, Another point, John, is when he was in prison at Moyamensing Prison, mm-hmm. the, the, prison, the historian there that worked with us on American Ripper told us some amazing things about Holmes' stay there. He basically had the door wide open. He had his own desk. He wore his own clothes. He decided who came in his cell and out. He decided what kind of food he ate. He controlled his stay there, as did Al Capone decades later. 
And that's yep. another aspect of the story which hasn't been, you know, opened up. Yeah, they created a suite for Al Capone. <laughs> yeah, and so so when people say when people say Jeff, you know, your theory about him escaping execution it would have had to have been a conspiracy of an amazingly compact complex sort. And I say, yeah, but who better to have done it than this man we just described? All right, it's 1888 and Whitechapel, London. And within a period of 10 weeks, there are a number of cold-blooded murders, slashings, and opening up of the abdomen, removal of organs, and one of the whole pushing theories to the, to the History Channel series is that H.H. H. Holmes was Jack the Ripper. Can you set the stage for that and, uh, and sell the jury here? Well, you know, let me start off right right now, John. Um, the case is solved. Myster- I mean, mystery is solved. Case is closed. H.H. H. Holmes was Jack the Ripper. If you gave me, if he was alive here today, I could march him down, have him arrested, march him down, have a, a court issue the, the arrest warrant. I could have him stand the trial for the murders of Catherine Edo- Eddowes and Elizabeth Stride. And could I prove beyond a reasonable doubt that he was Jack the Ripper? Not yet. But that's how a court case works. That's when the machine starts. That's when my law enforcement professionals go to work behind me, establishing that direct evidence I need. And that's when I dream of having Holmes take the witness stand to testify in his behalf and have me cross-examine him. So, and I don't know, I think he would do that. I mean, Obviously, he fired his own lawyers and conducted his own defense, so taking the stand would have been an easy thing for him. But um, that, those are the things I believe in my heart of hearts that, that I've solved this, this mystery. And it's time now for the world to tr- start trying to prove that Jack the Ripper was H.H. H. Holmes, not me proving Holmes was Jack the Ripper. Okay, how about setting up the means, motive, and opportunity? Well, we, you know, the motive thing comes up all the time. And it's people, that's one of their biggest arguments against my theory, is that the murders in Whitechapel were different than the murders at 63rd and Wallace. And my reply, John, is a simple one. I say, well, describe to me the murders at 63rd and Wallace. Well, uh, uh, none were ever uh, investigated, no. Were ever were evidence ever collected from any of those victims after the murders had concluded? No. Well, then how do you establish that the MO was? Well, during American Ripper, my co-host uh, Amarillis Fox, who is maybe one of the most brilliant human human beings I've ever met, she was trained by the CIA in forensic science. I used to call her Scully on the show for X Files. She came up with an amazing theory regarding Holmes's evolution of MO and how. When he was younger, he had killed in Whitechapel like that. But the fifth of the five Ripper killings, Mary Kelly, mm-hmm. had been conducted in secret in her apartment. Yes. And as Holmes traveled back across the Atlantic, quite remarkably followed by Scotland Yard, who believed that the killer was an American doctor, and they investigated a Ripper-esque-like killing in New York City, um, Holmes came to Chicago knowing that that Mary Kelly style of killing fit his fashion. And he, and he built the murder castle for it. And that's, uh, I think her theory is brilliant, and I think it fits Holmes and the way his thought patterns often change regarding his frauds and cons. 
um, I'm quite comfortable with uh, having that be part of my theory, along with the evidence that we have establishing him as Jack the Ripper. You seem to be pretty sure that of the five canonical victims that the Stride and Edo's murders were connected to Holmes, which th- those all happened within a period of just a couple hours. Um, why not? Yeah, those are, those are the, why yeah. not the others? Sorry. Well, those are the only ones I have evidence I could take to court with, John. And, you know, history was interested in all five of the murders. And I, I went along with them. But basically, as far as taking evidence of murder to trial to convince a jury and judge, the only two that I had that I knew I could be successful with were Eddowes and Stride. And that's because of the Dear Boss and the Saucy Jack postcard, the Dear Boss letter and the Saucy Jack postcard, which tie into the Eddowes and Stride murders. And as you know, I can tell you're a student of Jack the Ripper. I can tell you know the basic theories from historians about those two letters being a hoax written by a journalist. And it's um, my opinion that we have proven that Holmes was the author of Dear Boss. Okay. And, and the historian at the London Archives on the show came to the conclusion that Saucy Jack was written by the same hand as Dear Boss. It was just written by a man who wasn't able to sit down at a desk, who was in a hurry, and who wrote it with an instrument like a crayon. So, you know, you have some differences. But that was the London historian who I found an amazing, uh, amazing educated uh, man of forensic science. We then, had, we then had two linguists on the show who researched Dear Boss, uh, English linguists, and came to the conclusion that it was written by an American trying to sound English an American of amazing literary skill. And, you know, those are just part of the components um, tying Holmes to Dear Boss, Saucy Jack, and those two murders. You know, and then have you watched my TED Talk, John? Yes, I did. You know, we ran, you know, you, you can find a handwriting expert to say anything, quite frankly. You can, a prosecutor can get a handwriting expert to say this, this letter was written by this hand. Or you can get a defense counsel to hire an expert to say, no, I don't agree. It's not likely that's the same hand. It, the language they use, I've seen it a hundred times. And what we did was we took the Dear Boss letter and the correspondence Holmes had written to his lawyer while he was in London. And it's a very strange letter, in, except that for the fact. It states, I don't like London. I can't find my favorite paper, the, the New York Herald, okay? Mm-hmm. And, he wants to, and he wants to come home, and that's in the letter. Which, if you're, you know, if you're talking about a con trying to hide an alibi for murder, that's not a sentence you would include in a correspondence to your lawyer. I didn't know that. So, what was that later dated? Oh, that was later. That was, it wasn't at the same time, okay. but it, it proved that Holmes had made trips to London, all right? Yes. And uh-huh. it, also was, it also established a handwriting style. Okay, yep. We took, that, we took that letter and the Dear Boss to the University of Buffalo and a corporation there called the Cedar Fox Company who works for the FBI and CIA. And they, they came up with a computer program which analyzes um, handwriting and compares two different uh, documents and comes up with a number. And they agreed to test the Dear Boss and this correspondence from Holmes to his letter. 
And the number, I don't know if you remember my TED talk, but it, it was amazingly high in the 90s. And when I saw that and the style of the yours truly Jack the Ripper, yours truly H.H. Holmes on the letters and had my, my graphic expert run them together for my show and see the reactions of the audience as they saw that they were a perfect match. Yeah, I saw that. And, and you know, I, I never had any doubts after that. And when, and when you tie Dear Boss to those two murders and him describing the removal of ears and organs, and then Saucy Jack saying, well, you know, I didn't have quite enough time to get that last ear I wanted to get, but I'll get the next one. Um, I, I tell you what, that would be strong evidence in the court of law today at a murder trial. Mm-hmm. I've got a tough one for you. His daughter, I hope I get the name right, uh, Lucy, I believe, is that correct? Was it Lucy? I think it was no. his, his second wife. I think her name was Myrna. Yeah. And they had a daughter... Well, they had a daughter born July 4th, 1889, in Chicago. Yeah. And, he had, he, I, and they, had, they had had to have been in Chicago to conceive that child. That would put them in Chicago right around the first week of October, 1888, in order to just conceive. Give, give it three weeks, give it four weeks, either direction. He had to have been there in Chicago in, in um, September or October of eighty-eight. How do you answer that uh, one? That's the toughest one I could throw out, at you. John, that'd be thrown out of court in five minutes. I mean, do you have a blood type? Do you have anything establishing chain of custody that the daughter was Holmes? Do no, I was wondering. I was wondering if that was your bloodline. If it's not your bloodline, then it's not. Then, then uh, no, there wouldn't be any proof. No, you don't. You don't even have a birth certificate establishing <laughs> that Mudget was her father. Okay, you're right. And and also, I checked. I checked. I saw that piece because it's being argued about by a by a novelist. Well, now I, well actually, I found that one. I was I was trying to research this morning, and I yeah. came up with that one myself. Well, and then I checked, and then I checked that with a uh, with a doctor, a physician who handles um, births, and I said, could you actually run a birth backwards <laughs> to establish that a man wasn't in London on October thirty first, eighteen eighty eight? And he said, no, 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 you couldn't do that. No. So, I mean, I, you know, I, I try to keep an open mind about evidence coming in. The same fellow that grows that, uh, brings up that piece of evidence also established that there were voting records in Chicago, which established Holmes's presence. Mm-hmm. And John, the voting records of Chicago are world famous for having been fraud. Over and over again, it's the city famous for the dead voting, and I just—that's you know, that's a rough one too. I don't think that would stand up in court either. So you know what stands up in court? I don't know if you watch, but the sixth episode of American Ripper, my co-host Amaryllis, she establishes a passenger list yes. with Holmes's name on it uh, out on of South Ampton, out of Southampton, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. that that's. That's strong circumstantial evidence. Direct uh, evidence? No, you'd have to, because it wasn't a handwriting statement. It was by a purser as to the name of the passenger. Agreed. But I, I, and I had nothing to do with that. I stepped aside from that because I knew the doubters would claim that I had faked or that was another of my hope, so-called hoaxes. I stayed completely away from that and let history and my co-host take that one on by themselves. <laughs> and they came up with some remarkable evidence. He's definitely someone to look at. And there's no doubt about it. If that, if that passenger list, or if if ongoing research, 
can put him in London and Whitehall at that time, you've really got a possibility because it would fit his character to want to do that. Well, and, and when you, you, I know you've studied it enough. When you see the date of the Dear Boss letter and you know the transit times for the ships, it, it would have been impossible to write that letter in the United States and have it mailed to London. Right. So the author of Dear Boss was in the UK, probably London. And then when you see the uh, Saucy Jack letter two days after, you know, you know, the, the police knew of both letters. They asked the press not to publish the Dear Boss letter. They only allowed it to be published after the two murders so that you either have the author is the killer or he was, as the hoax, hoaxer state, a journalist who saw the letter you know, that the police had forbidden them to, to, to press, to uh, publish. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so you, so you break it down to that. And I think, you know, with our handwriting evidence, we're, we're number one on that suspect list. And I think it's strong, very strong. His story is, is fascinating. Your story of how you survived uh, writing that book and getting everything done that you've gotten done to this point and then having the History Channel pick it up is just fantastic. I had also heard, I think I heard you in an interview saying that if you could, you would like to find a way to pay a tribute or a memorial to those victims in Chicago. Has, has anything uh, progressed on that? Yeah, I asked the federal government for permission to make a bronze monument there on the grounds. Mm-hmm. Um, and I told them it would have nothing to do with homes. It would not be any kind of media circus. It would be a respectful statement to the dead that we hadn't forgotten them and that, that we were going to continue investigating and hopefully excavate those grounds to one day identify, you know, my, my evil ancestors victims. Well, the federal government refused this. They said we could plant a bush. Yeah. And I, I, I intend to continue with that. I intend to continue now that the show's over, uh, seeking permission to excavate the grounds at 63rd and Wallace. I think, you know, a police investigation, is required by law, both state and federal, John. Mm-hmm. When the federal government bought that property, they knew what the murder castle was. They knew what had gone on there before. They decided to look the other way and basically cover it over so that they could have that property which matched their needs with the rail line junctions and, the, and delivering the mail. And they weren't allowed to do that. And I'm going to go remind them, those victims deserve what's required by law, which is a proper investigation for murder. I agree. I think they do. So tell our listeners, what was it like working with the History Channel over the period of weeks that you did? Were you impressed with uh, with everything they did? What impressed you most? What challenges did you find? Oh, they were incredible. Uh, creative geniuses. I think some of the recreations on the show, I'm still amazed at, John, when I when I go back and rewatch the, the actor they picked and played Holmes was just perfect. He was wonderful. Um, the, the director that cre- did those recreations, I still, you know, hold in high regard. And the, uh, you know, when I took on the series, I had a lot of author friends tell me, you know, you're going to have happen to you what happens to all of us. You know, you don't have say over content or edit. You're going to be having, um, you know, your story turned into a television series, which is an incredibly difficult enterprise. 
And you've got to take your hats off to the people in entertainment and television that do that regularly. Because, you know, I, I, I can take another 100 pages on my book, John, and write, and write another issue. They mm-hmm. can't do that. They get 42 minutes in that hour. That's you know? right. And, and they've got to sell ads for it, too. It's, it's very difficult. And I was impressed to watch them. I was, oh, just amazed at the talent of the camera crews, the audio crews the managing team that followed us around and took care of all the little ins and outs. I was amazed that they worked around the fact that I'd never acted before and I wasn't a professional. Yeah, I was going to ask you that. Did, did you get nervous? Did it take some getting getting around? Oh, oh heck yes. The first, <laughs> the first couple of weeks, it felt like, I felt, you know, when you got five cameras on you and you're in downtown Manhattan, <laughs> you have 100 people looking over you like, who's that guy with the cameras? I felt like there were laser beams going into my skin. (laughs) Now, at the end, at the end, no problem whatsoever. I couldn't even tell you there was a camera around me. Yeah. Uh, There was a point, you were also right there. They were, you were right with them when they were doing the DNA research. Wasn't there a story you had the skull in your hands and you could feel something floating around in it? Yeah. Yeah. That was after the uh, exhumation. The remains had been taken to the University of Pennsylvania where, you know, some of the greatest uh, forensic anthropologists in the world work. And they cleaned off the skeleton, and it was uh, there on the, in the lab. And when I walked in, I'd had that Hamlet thought in my head for quite a while, John, and, <laughs> and I still wasn't convinced it was Holmes or not. But uh, if it was Holmes, I wanted to look him in the eye and, and ask him why he'd been so evil. Mm-hmm. And if it wasn't Holmes, I wanted to apologize to the innocent who had been put there in the wrong place. Right. And so I lifted the skull from the table, which caused a terrible reaction. I wasn't supposed to do that. And um, the, it flopped in my hand. And I flopped it again. And I, I called over to one of the anthropologists and I said, Janet, what is this thing flopping in my hand? She goes, Jeff, it can't be flopping. You're imagining. I said, well, come here and take a look. So she took it out of my hand. Her hand was gloved, and it flopped in her hand, too. We flipped it over, and the brain was still in the skull. So I I turned to her, and I said, wait, 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 wait. We're 120-some years here. How can the brain still be in the skull? And she says, it can't be. And I said, well, there it is. And I still haven't received an answer back from them explaining how it possible. That's amazing. I hope they kept it been a, a fantastic experience i've watched uh, as many videos as i could find on you and i just want to say what a good job you've done trying to get the word out on your book and on this story which which you have just pursued rel- relentlessly and well and how patient you were with some of the little bookstores and some of the places uh where you were you always had a smile and you were always cool and relaxed and and patient and just, I think a lot of credit needs to go to you for going out there for you know, as long as you have and just marketing so well and, and just being so good to people. Thank you very much. And, you know, you know, dealing in ripperology, there are people who react angrily to new theories. Yeah, I've been and finding that it out. Took me a, it took me a while to accept the anger that would come at me from someone who had already established an identity in their own mind and that bias wouldn't allow them to consider you know, the evidence that I was asking them just to look at, just look at it. Yep. And it took me a while to accept that anger. Now I'm okay with it, John. I can go on a show and have someone call me a name. 
someone call me a, an angry name, an ugly name, and, and look the other way. It's, it's part of Ripper lore, and it'll be, the, it'll be there forever. And um, I'm hoping, you know, with American Ripper and then with the movie coming out from Hollywood with Leonardo DiCaprio, that people will stretch their head and say, you know what? This, this was the guy who <laughs> could have been Jack the Ripper, and we need to take a closer look at this. Yeah. Any progress on that movie? Have you heard anything? No, I was looking at it today in preparation for your show, and as a matter of fact, um, the only thing I could find, John, is the period setting, you know, that World's Fair and then having to build a murder castle. Mm-hmm. Um, they're, they're having budgetary concerns about how much it's going to cost. So uh, I don't think they've actually started production yet. They could do a lot of that with graphics, probably, because really the, the stories happen inside the murder castle with regard to that. But yeah, I hear what you're saying. There's, when, yeah, whenever they're doing period stuff, it gets into it gets into a lot of money. Yeah, I wanted to ask you: Do you want to share what you're working on with regard to your new books that you're that you're doing? You know, I've um, I've got one that I finished. The manuscript's done. It's I'm waiting for the bloodstains to calm and American Ripper to calm down a little bit. But it's a fictional piece. Of, it's a detective story. I've always wanted to write a detective story like the old Philip Marlowe stuff. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And um, I wanted to see, John, if my writing style could carry the day without, you know, my famous ancestor as my platform. <laughs> and we're going to have a test here pretty soon. It's, it'll, it'll come out pretty soon. I'll t- tell you what, I'll send you a copy. But it's, um, That'd be wonderful. It's not, it's not your mother's detective story. There's, <laughs> there's love, romance, violence. There's all that stuff stuff in it that I just, uh, I like, I enjoy reading. So we'll see how it's, we'll see how it carries the day. <laughs> I'd, I'd appreciate, I'd appreciate you doing me a favor, putting my website on your show, um, www.bloodstainsthebook.com. Yeah. And, um, that's where, uh, as you, uh, accurately pointed out, I, I had a couple of offers to publish my book and decided to do it self-published. Mm-hmm. And over the over the objections of many professionals who are now admitting that I was right, we have a we have a success we have a successful book and we have a television series and I think within the next year or so we'll have a paper a document signed for a movie to be made of it. So I think most of your critics would say you did pretty well. That's fantastic. I hope. So. I hope. Listen, um, here's a question I wanted to ask you. We have listeners everywhere, and. I'm, the research, I'm sure, in your mind, is ongoing. If, if you could turn up a, a little bit here, a name there, an old newspaper article here, a picture there, uh, what are some of the things, what are some of the blank, empty puzzle piece areas that you'd like to fill in? And uh, if we had some uh, armchair experts who could get into some archives, what would you most like to see turn up? And, and, then, and, then, and then how do they get in touch with you? Yeah, and that's an a excellent point. I, every day I get material now from people in the U.K. who have watched American Ripper. I have a, a trip to London planned to see never-before-revealed artifacts whose owner states uh, emphatically, directly ties Holmes to Jack the Ripper. Um, I get material from the University of Michigan all the time about the archives there mm. regarding his uh, stay at the, at the school. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the thing, the material we found in Irvington in the box of artifacts was something I ha- wasn't expecting, and the, show, the producers of the show came up with that. And amazing stuff about original photographs, tin types of 
you know, we took to a profilist who said, hey, this is one of the Ripper victims and, you know, knives from London. And that kind of stuff I think is out there, John. It's just a matter of time before someone says, you know, let's, let's let Jeff take a look at this. He's the one that'll spend the time putting it out to the public, and he'll make sure that it's seen in the right light. And those things happen every day now, John, and I'm excited about it when I get up in the morning and have my coffee and open my new emails. Yeah, fantastic. Well, good. Is, uh, anything specific that you're after? And then how, and how oh, do people I, get in touch with you? Well, as I said, you can uh, www.bloodstainsthebook.com. Oh, we have a contact right. where you can write. Yeah, you can write us that. Okay. Um, as far as what I'd like to find one day, the artifacts in an excavation at 63rd and Wallace intrigued me, the possibility of what we could find there. Okay. Also, also I'd like to find a letter or a note from Holmes admitting the Whitechapel murders. We've never been able to locate anything like that. And that's a gap, a gap that a man who wrote memoirs, you might consider conceivably would have filled that gap on, you know, on his way to the gallows. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm looking for that. I'm looking for that. Although I don't think he was proud of those murders at all. And, and we look at it now after 130 years differently than he would have looked at it back then. I don't know. That's that's the gap I'd like to see filled. Okay. Well, I can't thank you enough. It's been a revealing interview. Uh, we will have this show up in a couple of weeks. And I just want to thank you so much. I'm uh, totally behind what you're doing, and uh, I congratulate you on all you've accomplished. It's fantastic. But thank you very much for being a guest on our show. Hey, thank you for allowing me the opportunity, John. And uh, if you'd ever like me to come back on, just give me a holler. I sure will. Thank you very much, Jeff. Take care. Oh, bye. Bye-bye. Thank you all for making 1001 Stories Podcast Network what it is today. Thank you. Mother's Day is almost here, and you can get her the most beautiful, time-tested gift around. A watch she can wear every day from Movement. Whether your mom is into classic dress watches, rare and refined ceramics, or tried-and-true bestsellers, Movement has something she'll love. And right now, everything at Movement is up to 50% off site-wide during their Mother's Day sale. A watch is a gift that celebrates all the time you spent with mom. And a Movement watch is even more than that. Movement uses industry-leading materials for their fresh modern watch designs, from technically complex ceramics to vintage-inspired style, all for an incredible value your wrist and wallet will both love. And with one-size-fits-all convenience and fast free shipping and returns, it's a stress-free shopping experience. Save big on the best Mother's Day gift ever with Movement. 
get up to 50% off site-wide during their Mother's Day sale at MVMT.com. Again, that's up to 50% off at MVMT.com.